Alright, hello, welcome back. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your, hey, where'd all the aliens go? Speculative Fiction Book Club Podcast by Clay Temple Media. This month we're going to be talking about the novel Rendezvous with Rama, written by Arthur C. Clarke. This was originally published in 1973. This book was nominated by a patron, and then it won, came in first on the Patreon vote, which is probably not a surprise given that Clark is a massive, massive name in science fiction. In second on that Patreon vote, we'll just go through the results here for a second, in second on that Patreon vote, and so what we're going to be reading next month was Finch by Jeff Vandermeer, because I never tire of detective stories, especially when they involve mushroom people. And coming in third, and this is going to be the the last one that we do from this batch, from this vote, was another book that was nominated by a Patreon supporter. This was the very first volume in the Jack Vance series, The Demon Princes, a book called The Star King. And the fact that this one was also probably not a surprise, given how important Jack Vance is to Gene Wolfe and how important Gene Wolfe is to this podcast network, to Clay Temple Media. But there were a a lot of really good books. There was a lot of really good stuff on the ballot that didn't make it. This includes uh, some John Belair's uh, The House with a Clock in Its Walls uh, on the ballot for, I think it's third or fourth straight time, and for its third or fourth straight time, missed getting in by just one vote. But John Belair's will go back on the ballot next time to join some other awesome books, and we'll see how he fares on that next vote. But all right, let's get to the matter at hand. Everyone knows Arthur C. Clarke. At the very least, everyone knows Arthur C. Clarke from the film 2001. But of course, he was one of the big three of science fiction, along with Asimov and Heinlein. So he's really unavoidable if you're at all interested in the history of science fiction. But I actually have way less experience with Clark than I do with the other two, with Asimov and Heinlein. In junior high, I read 2001, 2010, 2063, uh, the whole series. I actually read that for school. I had a fantastic English teacher. I had several fantastic English teachers in junior high, in fact. Uh, I've also read Childhood's End. I've read a lot of his short stories as well. But that's that's really been it. And and I do, I do realize that now that I'm saying that out loud, that saying I've only read four novels and 20 short stories and then describing that as not very much or hardly anything at all, that really just speaks to how prolific Clark was. And Clark was prolific, but so were Asimov and Heinlein. And... I just have not read nearly as much, uh, nearly as much of a percentage of Clark's work as I have Asimov's and, and Heinlein's. Heinlein, probably the biggest of, of the three, by the way, in terms of my reading history. But in any case, Rendezvous with Rama is a book that for the longest time I have felt that everyone in the entire world has read except me. And so I was really excited to see that this won the vote. I was really excited to get the opportunity to fill in this gap in my knowledge, to see what this book was all about. And I I know there are more books in this series, so that's something I might be interested in doing in the future as well. But before we get there, we need to talk about this, the first book. So let's just jump right into it. Let's go. And I'm sorry, I'm a dad now, so I have to do this. Let's get into it. Let's go rendezvous with Rama. Rendezvous with Rama is a space exploration story, and I love these. I mean, if you know anything about me, you know that I love space exploration and space exploration fiction. So here in this book, we are in the 22nd century, and a mysterious and massive object has just entered the solar system, and it very quickly becomes clear that it is not a natural object. This is no asteroid. It is something that has been manufactured. But it is so extraordinarily massive that 
it seems impossible that something like this could have been created by by someone. And who is that someone? Who made this? Where? When? There are no communication signals coming from it, and it won't respond to, to Hales. No communication attempts at all. Naturally, the only thing to do is to send a spaceship out to investigate, and that is where Commander Norton and his crew of the Spaceship Endeavor come in. When they arrive at Rama, they confirm that it is indeed manufactured. It seems to be a spaceship. It's a spaceship the size of a large asteroid. There is no response, no reaction at all when they dock with it. They find airlocks, but there aren't any booby traps, and they get inside, and at first they just find uh, a long hallway, but eventually they make their way to the real inside, to the inner chamber, which is a massive single room, tens of miles across and several miles wide and several miles tall. But no one is there, and there are no lights. There's no oxygen, though there is gravity because Rama is spinning. And a lot of the joy of these first 20 pages of the crew's exploration here in Rama is just how creepy and mysterious this place is. We're just waiting for aliens to jump out and confront our protagonists. But then the lights come on. It's really just part of some automatic process. And our protagonists can see that this is an artificial world. There's an ocean frozen because of the cold. There's several clusters of tall buildings that they think of as towns or cities. They're, they're clearly capable of housing 50,000 people each. But still, no one is there. As Rama gets closer to the sun, it begins to heat up, and this heat then melts the ocean, which in turn oxygenates the air so that the human explorers can breathe. It creates this Earth-like environment here in the middle of the spaceship. And this Ocean really is like a, a chemical soup, and eventually the humans discover that there are some life forms here inside the spaceship. They find a flower growing, and there are some weird crab creatures living in this chemical soup ocean, and there are even weirder tripod creatures following them around. Now, these all really turn out to be cyborgs that were manufactured recently, right? They were manufactured when the system turned on, when it was activated by the arrival here at a solar system. And of course, this is a huge mystery, and much of the book is about speculating as to what Rama is and what Rama is for. Aside from our crew of explorers, the, the crew of the Endeavor under Commander Norton, there is also a special commission of scientists of various disciplines, from astrophysics to anthropology, who've been getting together to try to answer exactly these questions. And we get some small chapters that are essentially cutscenes of this committee, cutscenes of uh, committee meetings discussing what other people are finding while they're exploring. I loved these chapters, I will say. And what we know is that Rama was launched hundreds of thousands of years ago, long before Homo sapiens even existed. And so Rama could not have been sent here to make first contact, at least not with us. And so there is then a serious worry that the Ramans, whoever they are, had sent this vessel, it's clearly a generation ship, that they had sent this vessel to Earth when it was devoid of intelligent life in order to establish a colony on what they thought of as a lifeless world, or at least a, an open world. And even though the Ramans on this ship did not survive the journey, that doesn't mean that there won't be other ships coming. But other people speculate that maybe there never were any Ramans on board. Uh, there's certainly no direct evidence of them. I mean, there's not a single body, not a single bit of writing or a single bit of anything, really. 
So maybe Rama wasn't bringing people to Earth. Maybe it was sent to Earth to pick people up and take them away somewhere else. And this is why it's only now activating and why it is creating an Earth-like environment, a habitat suitable for human beings. We're never going to actually get answers to any of those questions, though, at least not in this book. There is some political intrigue as well to all of this speculation, and this really gets going when the people who live on Mercury, there's, by the way, a whole solar system civilization. We're going to talk about that in the next segment. Uh, So the people who live on Mercury, the Hermians, they just decide to blow up Rama before it can turn into a threat. This is entirely a unilateral decision. No one but the Hermians wants this. And so Commander Norton takes it upon himself to prevent this disaster by simply disarming the nuclear missile the Hermians have sent. And I have to say, this is a pretty great, pretty awesome action sequence as the engineer character is sent over to the missile to disarm it before the Hermians can activate it. And this is 50% Scotty from Star Trek and 50% John McClane from Die Hard as this guy is uh, crawling through tubes. Uh, Uh, with tools in his mouth, uh, trying to avoid capture, trying to evade detection. It's a fantastic, exciting action sequence there. But in the end, it doesn't actually matter very much because Rama shifts course. And just after the Endeavor disembarks, Rama makes a a nosedive right for the sun. And it looks as if it's going to destroy itself, as if it's going to fly into the sun and destroy itself. But in reality, it is simply getting close to the sun in order to refuel its mysterious space engines before it leaves the solar system on an entirely new trajectory. And this is a trajectory that is going to take it out of our galaxy and aimed directly for another galaxy. I mean, galaxy to galaxy. This is a journey of incomprehensible eons. And that's the end. That's the end of the book. Almost certainly the shortest recap segment we have ever done in three years of this show, but it is also a very thin book, and I I do actually want to talk about most of the book's content, including its plot elements, in our themes and motifs segment. So let's just slide right into that. More than anything else, Rendezvous with Rama is a book about solving problems and unraveling mysteries through science. And so the plot of the book, as I've just recapped it, is really just there to provide a framework for little episodes of setback and triumph, uh, of, of mystery and solution. And these little episodes, these episodes, they let Clark write at length about gravity, about meteorology, about chemistry, really about every science imaginable. When the frozen sea begins to thaw, there's some crazy business with storms as a result of the closed system's air pressure and air temperature. When time is running out and they still haven't reached the far shore of the sea, they solve this problem by constructing a flying bicycle that can operate in the low gravity in the center of Rama. When the tripods and the lobsters appear, there is a lot of speculation and then eventually a dissection. And Clark writes all of this as a series of action sequences where solving the problem and figuring out how Rama functions is going to save someone's life, or or maybe the life of all of the crew members, save the ship somehow. There's always high stakes to these discoveries. Ultimately, it's a, a classic humans versus nature story, except that in this case, the nature is inside a miles long spaceship. The joy, the real pleasure of this book is in accompanying our crew as they encounter and then overcome these problems. Uh, And also, as the the Rama committee speculates about the Ramans and the purpose of the ship, I I may actually have enjoyed the committee meeting slightly more than the uh, adventuring and and exploring, which actually surprised me because normally I would predict the other way around. And there's a, a real thrill of discovery that suffuses every single scene in this book. And it makes science seem both exciting and also incredibly useful in basically any situation you might ever find yourself in. 
This is a real hallmark of Golden Age science fiction, and I have to say that it was refreshing for me to read this. I think we've been reading a lot of depressing stuff lately, a lot of pessimistic stuff lately. But what I really want to point out about the mood of this book is that it is wonder fiction. It is the opposite of weird fiction. And I bring this up because every once in a while, we get a note from a listener asking why we've covered this story or that story on Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast, when that story just seems like a fantasy story or a science fiction story. Now, for us here at Clay Temple Media on Elder Sign, of course, we don't treat weird fiction as a genre. We treat weird fiction as a storytelling mode that is on a spectrum that has weird on one end and wonder on the other. And Rendezvous with Rama is clearly on the wonder side of it. I mean, more than any other story that we have covered on any show here on the network, this is the most wondrous. This is clearly the farthest on the wonder side of this spectrum as we have ever done. But you could actually tell this story on the weird side of that spectrum, for sure. A mysterious generational spaceship shows up in the solar system. Nobody's on it. But it activates when you go inside, and suddenly there are tripod creatures and giant destructive lobsters. All of this, right, could be presented as weird, as grotesque, horrifying. It could be presented as revealing a cosmos that is dark and full of terrors. But that's not what Clark does. He takes all of these elements and presents them as proof that the cosmos is bright and full of life, that the achievement of constructing Rama is not terrifying and weird. It's awesome and wonderful. Where there are elements of the weird in this story, or at least elements that might be unsettling, I suppose is the better way to put it, this is all in the background. Commander Norton and his crew, and really even the members of the Rama Committee, are just like us. They may as well have grown up in Kansas in the the 1950s. They are perfectly recognizable. And since we don't see them in their normal environment, we do not see how the society of 2130 is any different from the society of 1973 except as background information. And Clark puts a ton of world building in the background to the the main story that he's telling here. So I just want to run through some of that, and I'm going to do that in, in no particular order here. The book doesn't actually open with Rama. It starts instead with some historical information regarding a meteor that has destroyed the Mediterranean Sea. When it hit, it obliterated Rome and Tunis, and it killed 100 million people. And the point of this, for Clark here, this is the catalyst for humanity to really take spacefaring seriously for the first time, to be concerned about the trajectories of asteroids and comets. And ultimately, this leads to the construction of a a solar civilization, a civilization of human beings on every sphere in our solar system. And Clark does explain that this was a horrible tragedy, though the way he does that is far removed from any intense emotion. That's just not the kind of book that he's writing. But ultimately, this really is a a boon. We get some information about how the draining of the Mediterranean as a result of this meteor impact has opened up the bottom of that sea to archaeology. And so even though Rome the city is obliterated, we're actually learning way more about Roman civilization, about ancient Roman civilization, than we ever knew before because we have access to this. The draining of the Mediterranean basin has also opened up this area to new cities, and so it's going to be a new cradle of a new civilization, right? This cradle of ancient civilization is getting uh, a new purpose here. It's all incredibly optimistic, even as he's writing about a horrible tragedy that killed 100 million people. 
The solar civilization that grows out of this tragedy is itself also very interesting. We have human settlement on the moon, on Mars, on Mercury, uh, even on some moons of Jupiter and, and some moons of Saturn as well. And while we don't get any demographics, we don't know how many people we're really talking about, we do know that it is enough people to necessitate a sort of United Nations-type institution for the entire solar system. And in fact, it's that institution that allows us to have the, the Rama Committee that supplied some of my favorite chapters of the book as well. Moving out into space has had some consequences for other human institutions as well, including religion and family life. So religion first. There is an entirely new branch of Christianity that believes that Christ was a space alien and that he's coming back. He's coming back in a spaceship to get everyone and bring them to heaven. And you can see right where the appearance of Rama could make this very interesting. And indeed, that is the context in which we get this information and for a while, it really does seem like Rama was built for humans to live in for generations while they are carried to some distant alien civilization for some purpose. Now, that turns out not to be the case here at the end of the book, but I will say I would read that book for sure. As for family life, overpopulation is something of a concern on Earth, and so families are limited to only one child. This is a real staple idea of mid-20th century science fiction. You've encountered it somewhere before. On Mars, however... It's underpopulation that is the real concern, and so there's a minimum children requirement. But at the same time, it is also a fragile balance there on Mars, and so rapid population growth is not desired. But in certain circumstances, you can be allowed to have three children. And we see this at the end of the book when that's a reward that's given to Commander Norton for his service, and this is a real honor. This is a real privilege. Uh, that's how he regards it anyway. But more interesting than population control, than, than, than child caps or child minimums, more interesting than that is that Norton has two wives. He has one wife on Earth and one wife on Mars, each with a child or two, depending on the planet. This isn't something that everyone in this solar civilization has, though Norton is not a unique case either. But he is special, right? This is a situation that arises because he's a spaceman. The two wives know each other, and so do the kids, and they all send Christmas cards each year, and it's, it's all very nice. And this is a really interesting way for Clark to suggest to teenagers in the 1970s that their idea of a normal family is completely a social and cultural construct, that families don't have to be organized that way, and for many human societies, they haven't been. And the future is going to bring changes in all sorts of areas of our lives, including this. But it is also a way for Clark to not have to spell that out or really explore the effects that these changes would have, the, the other social consequences of changes like this. There's one last world-building detail that I want to talk about, and that is simps. These are monkeys who serve on spaceships. They've been genetically engineered for greater intelligence. They can communicate via sign language with humans and, and with each other. Uh, we only encounter them in, in one small section of the story, and really they're there just to introduce the fact that they're on board Endeavor and that they perform simple tasks, right? They're the janitors so the human crew can be busy doing the awesome science and engineering that we have come to this book to read about. But we get a, a small detail about some other genetic experiments that have been tried, and, and I have to say there are a number of, of really cool potential stories embedded in that background information there that Clark could have written. Maybe Clark did write those stories, and I just don't know them. And ultimately, I have to say that the presence of the, the simps in the story is the most weird that Clark gets in what is otherwise completely a, a wonder story. And the weirdness comes here when he tells us a tale of a simp handler in space who, in an emergency, was ordered to euthanize his simps to, to kill them. 
And he did that, but he also euthanized him himself at the same time. He, he committed he committed suicide because he'd had to do this horrible thing to intelligent beings he regarded as, as colleagues, as, as friends, probably regarded as family. Now, because of this incident, the, the standard operating procedure is to have the chief medical officer do the euthanizing because they won't be so emotionally connected with the simps. This whole story came out of nowhere, and it really shocked me, because we are not in this kind of story. We are solidly in a wonder story, and then all of a sudden, we're mad scientists making intelligent monkey slaves and then murdering them in space during a crisis? It was a, it was a real shock to me. And all of these episodes, all of these background details are a real feature of the, the book. The main story is a thrilling wonder story about how fascinating the cosmos is, told entirely from the perspective of people just like us, or at least people just like our grandparents. That's probably the better way to think about it. But there are a lot of world-building nuggets that contain elements of the type of science fiction story that asks us to imagine a world that's very different from our own, or even asks some compelling theological and ethical questions. And this way of doing this was, was really nice. It was really refreshing. This was a refreshing way to see that done. In the end, the whole thing feels like an episode of Star Trek. And really, Commander Norton may as well have been Captain Kirk. I mean, there's even a Chekhov character actually here in this story. And it is a great episode of Star Trek. And I do not mean that as a criticism. In fact, I think that that is a real strength of the book, that this feels so much like a Star Trek episode. I think it's also a great strength of this book that when you really boil it down, this is a collection of adventure vignettes and offhand world-building nuggets. Each of these could have been a short story or even a novel of its own. And that really serves an audience of kids and teenagers because it gives them a chance to do exactly that. It gives them a chance to wonder about the consequences of changes in family life, or changes in religion, or what would happen if the Mediterranean suddenly drained, or 100 million people were uh, killed in a horrible tragedy tomorrow. It, it lets kids, lets teenagers, lets young people use their imaginations to envision a world that is different from ours. All of this, including the wonder fiction mode that Clark adopts here for this story, all of this serves to make readers excited about the world and excited about the cosmos, about how wondrous it all is. It's a book full of optimism, and it is spilling over with optimism, except for the part about murdering sentient monkeys, I guess. That part was pretty pessimistic. I will get over it someday, though I'm not sure when that day will actually be. And while I'm here proclaiming all of this as a feature of the book, I do understand that it could certainly appear to other readers as a flaw as well, that neither the characters nor the world are given any real depth here. But I do think that Clark did exactly what he set out to do, and he executed his plan flawlessly. Certainly, I'm happy to have read this book. I'm delighted to have read this book, and I'm glad to have it in my library for some fifth grader to discover someday. And that really was the context even in which I read this book. This is something that was very much on my mind while I was reading this book because I read it entirely on public transit to visit my wife in the hospital uh, where she had to stay for the, the month before our first son was born, our, our first child was born. And the whole time I was reading this book, I was really thinking about him as that fifth grader discovering this book on the shelves here in the basement and reading it and wanting to talk with me about it. And I'm really looking forward to being able to do that with him in 10 years. Now, there's one last thing I want to do before we close this episode out, and that is to call back to David Gerald's book, The Man Who Folded Himself, which we did a few months ago. Now, if you remember, when we did that episode, I talked about the introduction that Robert J. Sawyer had written to that book. And in that introduction, he says that this book, Rendezvous with Rama, should not have won the nebula. 
Sawyer's understanding of the Nebula Award is that it is for writers by writers, that the Nebula Award should go to a book that has done something daring, something new, something that has reshaped the, the whole genre of science fiction, or at least one of its parts, one of its subgenres. And so for Sawyer, the man who folded himself ought to have won. And I agree. If those are the criteria, then I think Sawyer is right. I actually enjoyed Rendezvous with Rama more than I enjoyed The Man Who Folded Himself. Uh, space exploration, though, it's one of my favorite things, so maybe it's a low bar, or at least a lower bar than uh, time travel stories need to hit for me to really love them. But even if I liked this book more, the, the Man Who Folded Himself was groundbreaking in ways that this book simply wasn't. And if that really is the criteria, then Sawyer is completely right. But I'm really glad I've read both of them, and I'm really grateful for the Patreon supporter who nominated both of them as well. This was the, the same person. I don't know if that was intentional. I don't know if you were picking up Sawyer's Gauntlet or not, or, or tricking me into picking up Sawyer's Gauntlet or not, I guess. But I'm really glad to have thought about it and, and to have thought about the Nebula Awards and the Hugo Awards uh, in this way. This is going to help me out when Brandon and I start doing the Book of the New Sun, which very shamefully did not win a Hugo, but did win a Nebula. And all right, on that note, that is my review. I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me and talk with each other about the, the themes and the motifs that I focused on here, but especially on, on what I left out. I did not get to everything here, but I would also really love to hear about your experiences with Arthur C. Clarke uh, or the, the big three of science fiction in general, or maybe even more broadly than that, just your experience with Golden Age science fiction. We do not read a lot of Golden Age sci-fi anywhere on the network, and, and maybe that's something we ought to be doing, and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that, especially if you have suggestions, especially if you have recommendations. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at claytemplemedia. Next time, we're going to be reading that Jeff Vandermeer hard-boiled detective, a mushroom people novel called Finch. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. 